0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the October 8th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. So let's get started with our litigation report. A law firm out of Miami, Florida, has been initiating class action litigation countrywide against insurance carriers on behalf of Medicare Advantage plans. The suits allege that insurance companies as primary payers have failed to reimburse the conditional payments made by the Medicare Advantage plans. The firm has met with mixed success as it has worked its way across the country associating with local law firms in various states. Now, a decision just issued out of the Third Circuit Court of Appeals where the court found that the trial court erred in certifying the class of Florida Medicare Advantage plans. This case is Ocean Harbor Casualty Insurance versus Claims. The plaintiff argued that Ocean Harbor Casualty Insurance was responsible as a primary plan due to the entry of no-fault insurance contracts under Florida's no-fault statutes. This would involve a series of mini-trials which would need to be assessed on a case-by-case basis, and accordingly, class certification was not appropriate. There were also a few interesting discussions in this decision which primary plans should take away. Medicare Advantage Plans' recovery rights are not automatic. Demonstrated responsibility must be demonstrated under the state's no-fault laws and the actual no-fault policy and must be proven on a case-by-case basis. What is also interesting is a discussion of whether Ocean Harbor failed to exhaust administrative remedies. This decision reinforces the current conundrum facing primary plans in Medicare Advantage Plans' private cause of action double damages litigation. Medicare Advantage Plans desire the benefits of acting like traditional Medicare in seeking the ability to sue and recover double damages for unreimbursed conditional payments, but They cannot have the benefits of acting like Medicare without carrying the burdens and proving due process to primary plans. Medicare Advantage plans need to afford primary plans with a formal appeal process if they want to act like Medicare. The Court of Appeal ruled that an employer has only 30 days to appeal the Division of Occupational Safety and Health Citation. Here's what happened in the unpublished case of ROM Construction v. the Occupational Safety and Health Appeals Board. An inspector from the Division of Occupational Safety and Health inspected a job site in Oakland where ROM Construction served as general building contractor. Following this inspection, the department cited ROM as a controlling employer for a safety violation. Rom contested this citation before an administrative law judge. After the ALJ upheld the citation, Rahm filed a timely petition for reconsideration with the appeals board, which was also denied. The appeals board filed its decision and served a copy on Rom by way of first-class mail. Thirty-five days after the appeals board's denial was rendered, Rahm filed for a petition for writ of mandate with the Alameda County Superior Court. Both the appeals board and the department challenged Rahm's petition for writ of mandate, claiming it was not filed on time, which is 30 days, and the motion to dismiss was granted without leave to amend. The Court of Appeal affirmed the dismissal in the unpublished case. Labor Code Section 6627 provides that an application for writ of mandate must be made within 30 days after a petition for reconsideration is denied. The California Supreme Court has interpreted another Labor Code provision that is in all significant respects identical to 6627. In the 1992 Supreme Court case of Camper v. WCAB, the High Court was asked to interpret Labor Code Section 5950, which is the statute governing the time limits to file a petition for review of a workers' compensation appeals board decision before the Supreme Court or an appellate court. It concluded that the filing of the appeals board decision is what triggers the running of the limitations period. There is no reference in this statute to service. Hence, The operative trigger of the time period set forth in Section 5950 is the filing of the order, not service. And now our crime report. The Orange County District Attorney recently formed the Sober Living Home Investigation and Prosecution Task Force to stop large-scale insurance fraud. Orange County has become known as the Rehab Riviera, with many addicts coming to the region from out of state, and sober living homes have quickly proliferated. And his efforts seem to be paying off. The task force just charged 11 defendants in a multi-million dollar large-scale insurance fraud scheme. Five doctors, two administrators, and four body brokers were charged with participating in this scheme. The physicians charged in this case are Dr. David Michael Scarpino, 53 of Huntington Beach, Dr. Gary Lamont Baker, 54 of Tustin, Dr. Fritz John Bumgartner, 61 of Rancho Palos Verdes, Dr. Henry Wong, 53 of Irvine, and Dr. Nabil Charles Morcos, 66 of Irvine. Thuy Rux, 78 years old of Mission Viejo, was the owner of Sober Life USA at 10900 Warner Avenue in Fountain Valley and was also charged. And Christine Thiemann, an administrator for Sober Life USA, is accused of hiring body brokers who recruited prospective patients who were paid $1,000 to receive a surgical implant of naltrexone, an opioid blocker. The recruiters allegedly mined for patients at sober living homes and AA meetings. The defendants are accused of participating in a scheme that subjected patients to a procedure that was experimental and not FDA-approved and dangerous. And billing insurance companies such as Anthem Blue Cross, United Healthcare, and HealthNet on average of $40,000 per surgery. Some who received surgeries were addicted to methamphetamine and not opiates. Sam Sarkis Solakian operated diagnostic imaging facilities throughout California, including in Richmond, Hayward, San Jose, Garden Grove, Anaheim, Burbank, and San Diego. His companies allegedly included Vital Imaging, San Diego MRI Institute, Global Holdings, LLC, Empire Radiology, LLC, Access Integrated Healthcare, LLC, Access Imaging, LLC, Paramount Management Services, LLC, and Capital Edge Holdings, LLC. Solakian was indicted by a federal grand jury, which was unsealed on September 27. The indictment alleges that Solakian intentionally conspired with Dr. Stephen Rigler Furman Iglesias, Providence Medex Solutions, Carlos Aguelo, Alexander Martinez, and others to commit honest services mail fraud. Prosecutors allege that the defendants paid compensation to physicians to refer workers' compensation patients to Salakian's companies for MRI and other services. And they allege that he entered into various sham agreements such as contracts for marketing, administrative services, and scheduling, when in reality the money paid by defendants amounted to volume-based per-scan bribes and kickbacks. Over the course of their scheme, he allegedly paid esglazius and Arguello through their company Medex over $8.8 million to obtain MRI referrals from physicians compensated by esglazius and Arguello. The defendants then allegedly submitted over $284 million in claims for ancillary medical services procured through the payment of these bribes and kickbacks. The Labor Commissioner's Office has cited three restaurants in Southern California for more than $1 million for wage theft violations owed to 22 workers. Most of the workers were paid less than $5 an hour and regularly worked more than 10 hours a day with no meal or rest breaks. The three restaurants were Sam Lung Cafe in North Hollywood, Orchid Thai Cuisine in Arcadia, and Orchid Thai in Baldwin Park. The Labor Commissioner's Office launched the investigation at Sam Lung Cafe and determined that the owners paid workers a flat rate of $50 for a 10 to 11 and a half hour shift each day with no meal or rest breaks. And the Labor Commissioner's Office launched an investigation last July into Orchid Thai and Orchid Thai cuisine and discovered that both of those restaurants paid their workers a flat rate of $45 to $50 a day for shifts of up to 10 hours. They also ordered workers to prepare for the day and clean up afterwards off the clock and did not pay them split-shift premiums as required by law. Enforcement investigations typically include a payroll audit of the previous three years to determine minimum wage, overtime, and other labor law violations and calculate payments owed and penalties that are due. Amerisource Bergen Corporation, one of the nation's nation's largest wholesale drug companies, and some of its subsidiaries entered into a settlement agreement and agreed to pay $625 million to resolve claims and civil liability under the False Claims Act. The claims against Amerisource Bergen arise from its repackaging and distribution of pre-filled syringes that were not approved for sale or use by the Food and Drug Administration. The term overfill is a frequently used term in the pharmaceutical industry, generally meaning the amount of extra drug above and beyond the labeled dose that is contained in an FDA-approved vial of drug. The reason manufacturers put overfill in each vial of drug is to ensure that the health care provider administering the drug will be able to extract the full labeled dose from the vial to give to the patient. Amerisource Bergen admitted that its subsidiaries shipped millions of pre-filled syringes to oncology practices after the drug product was extracted and repackaged into syringes In order to harvest the overfill. Thus, the company was able to create more doses than it bought from the original vial manufacturers. The profit from the overfill harvesting program was at least $99.6 million. The scheme also enabled Amerisource Bergen to increase its market share by offering various product discounts, which it leveraged to obtain new customers and to keep existing customers who purchased its entire portfolio of oncology drugs. The civil settlement brings to $885 million the total penalties that Amerisource Bergen has paid to resolve liability resulting from its program. The settlement also resolves allegations that the company gave kickbacks to physicians to induce them to purchase drugs through the pre-filled syringe program. The alleged kickbacks were in the form of general pharmacy credits provided to the customer. The four whistleblowers will share $99 million from the settlement. And in regulatory news, the DWC has posted proposed amendments to the pharmaceutical fee schedule to resolve to, uh, to fee schedule to its online forum where members of the public may review and comment on the new proposal. The fee schedule for pharmaceuticals is based primarily upon the MediCal pharmacy payment system. MediCal is now implementing a revised payment methodology approved by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Background information on the Medi-Cal changes can be reviewed on the Department of Health Care Services' Pharmacy Reimbursement Project webpage. Although the Medi-Cal Pharmacy fee schedule changes apply retroactively to April 1, 2017, the workers' compensation fee schedule changes will not be retroactive. The draft regulations Propose that the new methodology become effective for pharmaceuticals dispensed after January 1, 2019. Some of the regulation changes that are proposed to align the fee schedule with the new Medi-Cal system include elimination of the average wholesale price minus 17% as a benchmark for the drug ingredient and a revised methodology for payment of the drug ingredient, which sets the maximum at the lower of the national drug acquisition cost or wholesale acquisition cost for drugs lacking an NADAC price, as well as the adoption of the revised two-tier medi dispensing fee structure for pharmacies, which increases the dispensing fee from the current $7.25 to $10.05 or to $13.20 for those pharmacies listed by medi as eligible for the higher fee. And there will be new rules addressing fees for compounded drugs and repackaged drugs. And the DWC has now added new chapters to the MTUS. The Division of Workers' Compensation has posted an order adopting the regulations to update the evidence-based treatment guidelines of the MTUS schedule. The adoption follows a public hearing on the proposed adoption, which occurred last July. The updates incorporate by reference the American College of Occupational and Environmental Medical. Environmental Medicine, that's ACOM's, Most Recent Treatment Guidelines to the General Approaches and Special Topics Sections of the MTUS. The ACOM guidelines that are incorporated by reference into the MTUS are the Traumatic Brain Injury Guideline, November 15, 2017, Prevention Guideline, May 1, 2011, General Approach to Initial Assessment and Documentation, July 25, 2016, and the Cornerstones of Disability Prevention and Management, May 1, 2011, version. The DWC Executive Medical Director, Dr. Raymond Meister, said that the DWC has incorporated the most recent guidelines to ensure that the MTUS contain the most recent state-of-the-art current evidence-based recommendations. The United States Senate accomplished a rare feat passing a bipartisan bill, H.R. 6, with a vote of 98 to 1 following a prior vote in the House of Representatives of 393 to 8. This legislation adds multiple resources to the opioid epidemic tools as well as restrictions intended to aid in the fight against the spread of the epidemic. The bill is a combination of dozens of smaller proposals sponsored by hundreds of lawmakers. Here are some of the 41 key components of the opioid package, H.R. 6. The law authorizes law enforcement programs through the Office of the National Drug Control Policy, such as programs as the High-Intensity Drug Trafficking Area Programs, Drug Courts, COPS Anti-Meth Program, and COPS Anti-Heroin Task Force Program. It expands first responder training, authorized through the Comprehensive Addiction and Recovery Act to include training on safety around fentanyl and other synthetic and dangerous substances. The new law improves coordination between public health laboratories and laboratories operated by law enforcement to improve detection of fentanyl and other synthetic opioids and improves federal agencies' ability to detect these synthetic opioids and other substances from entering the United States through the mail. Another provision makes it illegal to pay for or receive kickbacks in return for referring a patient to recovery homes or clinical treatment facilities. And it expands medical education and training resources for healthcare providers to better address addiction, pain, and the opioid crisis. And it improves emergency departments' ability to effectively screen, treat, and connect substance use disorder patients with care, while it explores alternative pain management protocols in order to limit the use of opioid medications in emergency departments. The law expands Medicare coverage up to 30 days for individuals between ages 21 and 65 years old receiving care in a treatment facility for all substance use disorders, lifting the 16-bed restriction and it expands access to substance use disorder treatment and other services through the use of telehealth. These are just a few of the many provisions of H.R. 6. And in medical news, a research team published the results in the Annals of the Rheumatic Diseases, claiming they have developed a novel therapeutic treatment that has the potential to stop knee and spine osteoarthritis in its tracks. Osteoarthritis is the most common form of arthritis and is characterized by a breakdown of the protective cartilage found in the body's spine, hand, knee, and hip joints. Current treatments for osteoarthritis address the symptoms such as pain but are unable to stop the progression of the disease. However, the new blocker has the ability to prevent further joint destruction in both knee and spine. The research team zeroed in on a biomarker or molecule which is believed to also cause the inflammation, cartilage destruction, and collagen depletion. Using the newly developed blocker, the team was able to stop destruction and protect the cartilage. The technology is in its infancy, but the research has now taken a big step forward. If researchers are able to develop a safe and effective injection for patients, this discovery could be a game changer. The next steps for the research team include commencement of safety studies, determining proper dosage, and developing a method for injecting the blocker directly into the knee and spine joints. And that is all of our news and events this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish a daily flash briefing on the Amazon Alexa Echo platform. Search for workers compensation news on the Amazon website. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd Skarin, Minukian Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. And please drop by again next week for more news.